There's huge benefits to passing a clean electricity standard, and one of those are the lives saved. So there's Harvard University research showing that by 2030, clean electricity standard could save over 9,000 lives because of that sudden cut in air pollution. And over the next 30 years, that number just grows exponentially to 300,000 lives saved, according to this estimate. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 55th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. For today's episode, we have another special guest on to talk about a topic that's been expanding the conversation around clean energy, even outside of our industry, and has the potential to really shake up the future of energy across the country. I am so excited to introduce you to our next guest. However, before we do that, we've got just a few updates to provide first. In big news this week, the North Carolina Senate voted unanimously on Tuesday, August 24th to confirm Elizabeth Beiser as Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality. This news comes after the Senate denied the confirmation of Acting Secretary Dion Delegati earlier this session. Beiser will be the first woman to serve as DEQ Secretary. Prior to this role, she served as Director of Legislative and Intergovernmental Affairs for four years with what was formerly known as the North Carolina Department of Environment and Natural Resources. Then she went on to work for a law firm and then more recently served as a policy advisor for the Recycling Partnership. And to circle back on Dion, she's now also serving in an official capacity with the state as North Carolina's Clean Energy Director at DEQ. I've included a link to a news story in the show notes with more information about Elizabeth Beiser's recent confirmation. In not so great news this past week, as part of some growing momentum we're seeing in various counties around the state, the Person County Board of Commissioners just denied a permit for construction on a 920-acre solar farm under development by Pine Gate Renewables. The denial came on the cusp of concerns about impacts to local wildlife and the decommissioning process at the end of the project's useful life. While many of these concerns were misguided, it didn't stop the commission from denying the project and also implementing a wider six-month moratorium on solar development in the county. This moratorium has been put in place even after all the benefits solar has brought to Person County, including a total increase in property tax revenue by $69,066, which is equivalent to an 802% increase. And the last story up today is the news that Duke Energy has been found to have spent at least $1.2 million over the last year and a half to promote the Comprehensive Energy Bill H-951. This money can all be traced back to board members, an employee political action committee, and directly from the company itself. The political group of note and one that you may have seen yourself recently on social media is Citizens for a Responsible Energy Future. The organization has received just about $750,000 to date 
and 150000 earlier this year for a full report on how this money is being spent and who its beneficiaries are. We've included a link to the story from Elizabeth Oots at the Energy News Network in this week's show notes. It's finally time to jump into the focus of today's episode. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about updates on Capitol Hill up in D.C. and proposed policies that would stand to have a major effect on energy markets all across the country, including our own here in North Carolina. We're specifically talking about clean electricity standards. As you may or may not have heard, There's been a lot of talk about the inclusion of a clean electricity standard as part of the budget reconciliation process in the Senate. This would stand to alter the energy landscape across the country as we know it. So let's spend today's episode talking about what a clean electricity standard actually is, the likelihood of something like it actually passing the Senate, and the implications of a policy like this for utilities and ratepayers. So with that, let's kick off the 55th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Clean energy. Clean energy. Today, I have the distinct privilege of introducing our next guest, who is currently a senior reporter covering climate change for Vox. Before joining Vox, she was an environmental reporter at Mother Jones, where her investigations exposed government corruption and fossil fuel industry disinformation. She has worked as a staff writer at Grist, The New Republic and Think Progress. A dozen more outlets have published her work over her decade as a climate journalist. She was also recognized in 2017 as one of the top 10 environmental journalists in the country. We are so excited to welcome Rebecca Lieber, senior reporter at Vox, to the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. Rebecca, welcome to the pod. Great to be on. To frame up our conversation, as many of our listeners know, and honestly, one of the primary focal points for this podcast is the fact that policy is a key driver of clean energy deployment and adoption throughout the country. We've seen in places like North Carolina a rise to the top in solar deployment due to renewable energy portfolio standards, amongst a number of other policies here in the state as well. So can you give us a high-level lay of the land in terms of state policies that have driven clean energy adoption across the country? So clean energy targets have been around for years. Right now, um, 30 states and Washington, D.C. have adopted their own targets for cleaning up the power sector. Um, So during the Trump administration, states and cities were where most of the progress was happening because there was such limited development at the federal level that the U.S. kept pushing forward on uh, increasing clean energy usage and deployment because of these state targets. So this summer, um, states have actually just strengthened those initial targets. Uh, We've seen this increase in states adopting these 100% renewable um, resolutions, and those are (laughs) non-binding. So what really matters is the policy that they pass to actually get there. Um, But one of the more aggressive uh, policies that were passed just this summer was from Oregon, which passed an 80% pollution target by 2030. That's right in line with the federal goals. Yeah. And we've we've seen some of that here in, in North Carolina as well, in the western part of the state, Ash, in Asheville, where they've already set 100% renewable energy target uh, also. But, you know, a, as you kind of mentioned, right, it's it varies all across the country. Different states have taken different strides, set more ambitious goals than others. So, Why are these policies not enough? And why is it that we need sweeping federal policy to move the needle? 
Well, you said yourself, I think the most obvious point is if without a federal standard, we have very uneven progress. So if you look at a map of the states that have passed clean energy targets, you're missing a huge chunk of the southeastern states. Um, Actually, uh, Texas, surprisingly, does have its own renewable policy, which I think most people would be surprised by. But when you look at a good portion of the South, you're not seeing uh, these great leaps in clean energy. Um, You're also not seeing those leaps made in states that are traditionally reliant on coal and gas um, because there's a financial incentive to continue with that inertia. So you need a federal standard that actually lowers or evens out that playing field. Um, But there are a few other reasons it's really important that federal policy gets on board and we don't just have states that lead. First of all, we're obviously not um, going to match climate targets to the extent that it's needed on the pace that's needed Um, without federal policy. That's because the federal government can provide funding and standards that states can never match. Um, It also means that in this clean energy transition, utilities are not going to pass the costs of that transition on to consumers and on to ratepayers. Right now, uh, without a standard, we see a mismatch of policy throughout the country where, um, especially after disasters, we've seen how ratepayers are the ones paying up for blackouts, for uh, fluctuating uh, gas and oil prices. And we, um, in some ways, we need federal policy to ensure that we're not um, having big companies just pass along the cost to the people who can't afford it. And I should add one other point I forgot is electricity is not firmly in state lines either. And that's another reason we need federal support. Um, I think if you consider our electricity system as only a state level issue, you you run into some real problems. And we saw that with the Texas blackouts earlier this year, um, that Texas having its own in-state energy system saw um, didn't have the reliability and didn't have the redundancy in its system to actually um, keep the power on in the middle of a disaster. So electricity is obviously an interstate issue. And that, of course, is where you need the federal government to step up and to ensure we don't have one state that is uh, dominated by coal while next door it's pushing forward to uh, being powered by solar and wind. That also, I think, brings up something that we, we might hit on a little bit later in the conversation, which relates to transmission, right, and, and carrying generation from some, some parts of the different parts of the country, right, where there's not as much of it. Um, so one policy at the federal level that's been receiving quite a bit of attention lately is a clean electricity standard, as there's a possibility for the inclusion of this policy in the Senate's budget reconciliation process. So to back up, what is a clean electricity standard and what in particular is being talked about as part of this process right now? So the policy that uh, we could end up with, a lot of things are in flux, is called, um, it's actually called a clean electricity payment program. I like to say clean electricity standard for short because that's really jargony. But um, basically the idea (laughs) is... um, The federal government, Congress, would pass in its budget resolution a policy that uh, incentivizes and pays utilities to clean up their act and to 
um, to incorporate more clean energy generation into their system while fining them for missing deadlines and for continuing a reliance on fossil fuels. So these um, these kinds of deadlines tied in year after year so that by 2030, we're ratcheting up to having a system that's 80% powered by clean energy. If you look at where we are now, um, the country is powered by about 20% renewables. I'm including hydro in that number um, and another 20% uh, by nuclear. So if you assume all of that stays on the system, that means we need another uh, 40% by 2030 that is powered by renewables. Um, so you asked me, <laughs> what is the chance that this actually passes um, in Congress? And um, that is very up in the air right now. We had some, I guess, good news this week. The House passed a resolution that recognizes a clean electricity standard as part of its $3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation package. That doesn't mean it has passed into law. Um, it's actually just a symbolic <laughs> resolution. So what will happen is the next month, Congress needs to um, get all Democrats in line. So every single Senate Democrat in line for supporting um, a reconciliation package that includes a clean electricity standard. Um, this is a dual pathway that they're pursuing to both pass these kinds of climate priorities of President Biden at the same time that they pass a bipartisan infrastructure package. But by pursuing a re reconciliation path, they can overcome that Senate filibuster. In in talking about this, this specific policy here, Let's say we were to get to a point where we do see its inclusion in reconciliation and it passes through the Senate. You had mentioned that it would really push forward 40% additional renewable energy onto the grid. Is that actually achievable? And what what all would that mean, right? Like how, how do we get there? I think there's a, there's a portion of uh, the, the provision right now that's proposed that includes um, some significant funding behind that. Would that enable us to actually deploy that 40% additional renewable energy onto the grid? Yeah, there are a number of analyses that say this is possible. And within our grasp, if the federal government costs up enough money to make it happen. So um, we have, I, I guess if you're picturing um, what this means for our energy system, Fossil fuels have dominated our source for power for over a century. This would mean in less than a decade, most of our power is actually coming from clean sources, which has never happened. So this is this is really radical change, but it's it's change within our power because um, when you look at the um, skyrocketing growth of renewables, while costs have come down considerably and other technological advancements just in the last 10 years, um, you see this, this path opening up for um, a much cleaner system. Now, looking at the costs here, um, the bill um, that is under discussion, is there, Democrats are looking at somewhere between $150 billion to $200 billion um, for this payment program for utilities. But what's really important here is that that's combined with clean energy tax credits that also lower the cost of buying clean energy um, for electricity. So um, these, these policies are a package. Um, one doesn't work without the other. 
And Senate Majority Leader Schumer on Wednesday released his own analysis looking at how clean electricity payment program combined with these energy tax credits are really the two pivotal policies for Democrats achieving their climate pollution cuts. Biden has set out a a goal for cutting American climate pollution by half by 2030. And um, to get there, cleaning up the electricity system is really what matters here. Um, because once you have a cleaner electricity system, you uh, also end up cleaning up everything we're plugging into it. So that co- that counts electric vehicles, that counts um, homes that are powered by electricity. Um, so this has much bigger implications than just when you flip on your light switch. So thinking about the the political realities of, of Washington, D.C., uh, you know, I know right now this policy we're talking about uh, is is really dependent upon, uh, you know, every single Senate Democrat voting yes on a budget reconciliation package. Do you foresee a pathway in which Republicans would be supportive of a clean energy standard this session or as its own sort of standalone bill uh, sometime in the future? Or, or do you see this, you know, at least for, for the inevitable future, kind of our last chance to get significant clean energy policy in before the midterms? I, I think if you pay attention to what Republicans have been saying on climate, it's hard to make the case or impossible to make the case that um, suddenly you'll have a party really invested in um, serious climate solutions. That said, I think it's a bit of a myth to think of clean energy itself as a partisan issue. Um, a lot of wind and solar generation is happening in Republican states. Texas is one of the leaders in in renewable energy. So um, while clean energy isn't partisan, Climate change has become this really polarizing topic, and I think that's where Republicans and Republican politicians really get stuck, that um, they have shown some willingness to support things like extending clean energy tax credits, but uh, any more ambitious climate policy, especially if it means phasing out fossil fuels, uh, Republicans say that's going too far. So what we saw with the infrastructure package, that was a bipartisan bill that um, received quite a bit of Republican support, and it did have some climate measures. It was actually the first time we had Congress in uh, modern times recognize climate change as a threat. We had both parties sign on to this bill that they're saying we need to adapt and address climate change. That bill doesn't do enough, and that's why the reconciliation package is so important here. So no, I don't think Republicans are going to suddenly get on board with the clean energy standard. I do think there are certain um, very specific policies where you do find room for bipartisan agreement when it comes to clean energy. But when you're talking about transformational change, the Republican Party, um, at least the federal, um, federally elected Republicans, uh, really have um, opted more for misinformation and denial than for opting for those solutions. All right. So let's look at best case scenario. A clean energy standard is included in the reconciliation process. We see it pass. What does that mean for utilities across the country? Well, utilities would be paid essentially for this clean energy transition. Um, And then 
the way Democrats have discussed structuring this, the idea is protecting consumers from any costs being passed along to them from that transition. So that's where this payment program comes in. That's where these clean energy tax credits come in, that it, it in the end, also protects um, the people paying their utility bills, that they're not the ones shouldering the burden of this climate transition. Um, now, utilities across the country, this is an incredibly complicated system. We have uh, utilities that are publicly owned, that are privately owned, um, that uh, have opposed climate action. We have utilities that have set their own clean energy standards for their companies. So we have quite a range. Um, so it's hard to talk about utilities as, as one single block because I think when we look at political opposition and um, this willingness to get on board with a, a transformation, um, utilities can really span uh, the political spectrum here. Um, I think what this does, we talked about at the beginning, it, it is setting benchmarks and kind of evening out this playing field as opposed to having very uneven standards set across states and different targets. So um, the idea with the money that is attached to this, that that this is this is the boost that utilities actually need to make that jump. And in talking about some of these payments that would be made to utilities, would that actually help in in recovering the cost of, of some of the stranded assets that would be left out on the grid? Uh, you know, thinking about some of the, the the existing coal plants that we still have, and a lot of the natural gas plants that have been proposed through utility planning processes at utility commissions across the country. Uh, so would those be covered by some of the, the funding that would be allocated under a clean energy standard? It's a good question. What happens with stranded assets? Um, when it comes to coal plants, uh, one thing that's clear, if we're going to get to 80%, about 80% in pollution cuts with an 80% clean energy sector, all existing coal plants need to retire by 2030. Um, right now, in um, I believe the last 10 years, about half of the nation's coal plants have actually retired. So um, that leaves a few hundred left. Um, that is enormous progress in that period um, that we did not have a federal standard. So this um, certainly helps with that transition. I think coal, the writing has been on the wall for years now that this is um, something that is in the process of being retired. When it comes to gas plants, this gets more complicated because we've laid down a lot new infrastructure for gas just in the last decade, while coal is this much older part of the system. Um, so when it comes to gas um, and how to handle the stranded assets, I think um, that is actually where Democrats have been a little bit less clear of, of where they will fall and whether they can actually come to an agreement of how to treat gas in these kind of these questions around climate change. You can you continue to sometimes hear some politicians talking about gas as a bridge fuel, even though there's a lot of evidence running uh uh, to counter that. But um, I think I think the question of, of gas and its future is a lot tougher. But but one thing that's clear um, and one thing environmentalists have really pushed Democrats on is to recognize that incentivizing more gas and building new plants and new infrastructure is the wrong policy to do, because this doesn't just mean um, what we're dealing with now in our grid now. This is um, 
our biggest investment in infrastructure that we've seen in decades. And um, I think you asked this question earlier, but the idea of whether we'll get another shot, this is uh, probably Biden's only shot, uh, at least in in his only or first term as president. This is the, the only chance that Democrats have to pass ambitious climate policy. And um, we don't know when we'll get a chance like that again. So um, the idea here is whether they have, they set out a path for this managed transition where we are setting specific targets with incentives, with protections for people um, all laid out um, or whether we, we transition to a warming world with complete chaos <laughs> and um, where we do have bankrupt companies struggling with this transition where we have consumers facing outrageous bills um we know there will be a cost to this climate transition and the idea is whether we do this orderly or we um we basically don't have an answer and people suffer because of it so you've laid out a potentially grim future uh should we not make you know some of these these transitions or investments uh, that are on the table right now, you know, looking at it from the other perspective, what benefits could we expect to see as a country from widespread implementation of a clean electricity standard? So I was saying earlier, if you can picture it, um, it's it means in less than 10 years, we have a country that is mostly powered by clean energy and and the way to translate that into what this actually impacts in everyday life, pollution is still a huge problem for the U.S. Ozone, smog, um, particulate matter, um, all sorts of emissions are killing people. And there are huge benefits to transitioning off of fossil fuels purely on health costs alone and purely on lives saved. Um, one analysis from this group, Energy Innovation, put the economic gains from this clean electricity standard at $1.7 trillion in benefits from healthcare costs, economic pr productivity, and lives saved. So there are real gains here. Um, and at the same time, um, the, the argument environmentalists have, have pointed to a lot, and when Biden calls his plan a jobs plan, when you look at the um, transition to clean energy, there will be job creation, just as we're worried about the transition for fossil fuel workers, that they um, are not left behind in that transition. There will be new jobs created from, from this uh, transition to a cleaner economy. So I think looking at this um, in terms of the, the health benefits, the economic benefits, um, the job creation, there, there are huge gains to be made. But um, the one that really hits close to home is um, when you look at the pollution that communities continue to um, have to put up with a coal plant and coal ash that's dumped in their rivers. And we have communities that are suffering from the impacts of uh, fracking and gas extraction. And this is not a, a world we have to live in anymore. So I think um, when you look at it in, in those terms, that's that's what strikes me as the most transformational part of this policy, that um, you have that kind of impact at the community level. And this is an opportunity for us to really 
put our money where our mouth is and, and signal to, you know, to the country and to the rest of the world that we're, we're serious about this transition, which I think is an important message to send, especially, you know, just, just over a month or almost two months out from COP26, where, you know, we're going to see countries really step up their commitments to this clean energy transition and, and cutting carbon. So the last question I have is related to just infrastructure, the, the most recent infrastructure bill that passed, and then the greater uh, reconciliation package as well. So at a high level, could you provide just a, a small glimpse into what else is included in those bills related to climate and clean energy? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting policies here to give a brief overview. I mentioned that clean energy tax credits are important here too. Um, there is a lot of, there is um, a lot, but not as much as Biden hoped for in the infrastructure package when it comes to electric vehicle investments and charging stations. Um, transportation is our biggest source for pollution. So that's an important area for us to clean up. Um, some of the interesting policies that I, I have been following include a price on methane, uh, coming from oil and gas extraction, that would be our first and, and most ambitious policy to regulate methane um, by pricing it like we've talked about with pricing carbon. Um, another interesting policy in there is um, one to clean up abandoned mines. Um, this is uh, actually an area that we've had such little investment in, especially at the federal level. We don't even know how many mines we're even talking about and how much they're leaching when it comes to pollution. Um, but these are a source of greenhouse gases. So cleaning up those is is just a really smart policy to both clean up pollution that is hurting people at the same time you're cleaning up climate pollution. You mentioned also the international implications, and I think that's a really important point. Um, just the timing of this, that Democrats are hoping to have a law signed by the time the next international climate conference comes around because um, the world has seen the U.S. Um, go back and forth on climate policy for decades now. And Democrats, to really um, show that the U.S. is serious and that these policies are here to stay, um, they need a law passed now. It's not just going to ride on the promises of a president. Um, it's going to matter what Congress has to say. So um, this has huge international implications beyond the U.S. when it comes to convincing the world that the U.S. is really on board and that we can come together to tackle the climate crisis. Yeah. And, you know, I think from from what you've laid out in, in talking about some of these provisions that that are on the table right now. Uh, it's a really exciting time to be in the the climate and clean energy space, and I think we're also at a at a crossroads here where we we do have the the efficacy to really make change. Uh, it'll just be all a matter of of whether we we do so. Um, so we'll definitely be following your reporting in the coming weeks and coming months as these bills move uh, one way or another, uh, and it'll be really interesting to stay on top of what's going on. So. Rebecca, we really, you know, are appreciative of you spending some time this afternoon and, and providing an overview of what's going on over in D.C. and, you know, what different states and utilities can expect as a result of that. So, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. It was so great to dig into this. My key takeaway from today's episode is that passing a nationwide clean electricity standard would protect the lives of thousands over the next decade 
by preventing emissions from some of our nation's dirtiest generation sources. And not only would there be significant health benefits, we'd also see widespread economic benefits as clean energy jobs would scale at an even faster rate than we're seeing now. It'd also give birth to so many additional companies that would stand to benefit from this growing sector of the economy. Lastly, a clean electricity standard would also be instrumental for states that have been slower on the clean energy adoption curve, as this would help to give them a leg up in moving faster into the energy transition. And that does it for today's episode. But before you go, we've got another episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. Every episode, join us as we travel to each corner of the state to tell you the story of clean energy and the value it brings to our local communities. Along the way, you'll also have the chance to learn a little bit more about each of the communities that call these projects home. So on this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler, we are headed over to New Hanover County. And to lead us on that journey is NCSEA's own Energy Program Manager and Duplin County native, Daniel Pate. Hello, squeaky cleaners. It's your favorite traveling companion, Daniel Pate, here, and it's time for another edition of The Solar Traveler. I know you've been on the edge of your seat the entire episode, wondering which North Carolina county you're traveling to this time. And we here at NCSEA figured that with the summer beginning to wind down, we would fit in a quick beach trip for the end of the season and check in with our friends over in New Hanover County. So grab your flip-flops and your fishing poles, and let's head east. New Hanover County is a coastal county located in the southeastern part of the state, approximately an hour's drive from the South Carolina border. It's one of the most densely populated counties in the state, ranking at number six. Here you will find several well-known beaches that have been a boon for tourism in the area, including Wrightsville Beach, Carolina Beach, and Curie Beach. While the county is known for its beaches, the Azalea Festival, and the famous tourist attraction and former World War II battleship, the USS North Carolina. The area is also known for its history of movie production. Action! In 1983, the film Firestarter was the first film to be shot in the city of Wilmington. And since then, the city has hosted 138 feature films and 162 television productions according to the Wilmington Regional Film Commission. This has earned the city monikers such as Hollywood of the East and Wilmywood. A shout out to our NCSEA members over in New Hanover County, including Cape Fear Solar Systems, the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority, and the City of Wilmington, which aims for city operations to be powered off of 100% clean energy by 2050. In New Hanover County, there are a total of 473 solar systems that total over 7.25 megawatts. 
or enough to power 1,189 beach houses. New Hanover County has 731 registered electric vehicles. The city of Wilmington is home to a number of energy efficiency certified buildings, including 23 Energy Star certified buildings and 16 LEED certified buildings. That's over 3.6 million square feet of energy efficiency certified building space. Well, that's enough beach time for now. Hope you didn't get too sunburnt this go around and hope to see you next time for the next edition of The Solar Traveler. That does it for this version of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. And if you're like me, you're rushing out the door to catch a few more rays before we head back indoors for the fall and winter. So maybe I'll see you out at one of New Hanover's beaches before the summer's up. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout, at Matt Abel, for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 55 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.